The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I was the case officer kind of in charge of this individual and, and it, you know, our headquarters was very excited about it. And, and ultimately what happened is we met him too much. Meetings were too frequent. He was crossing over from enemy lines and he was caught and he was tortured and executed. And that had a really kind of profound effect on me because uh, ultimately uh, I am responsible. And one of the things in the book that I talk about, I talk about that kind of that sacred relationship between a case officer and an agent. You can say it's a marriage, it's a romance, but ultimately these are individuals who, particularly in conflict zones, you know, put their lives in our hands. And so, you know, we are not supposed to screw up. And in this case I did. And so ultimately, you know, what, what I took from that is I, I learned from that. I'm Shane Harris, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 10th, 2021. Mark Polymeropoulos served for 26 years in the CIA. He joined the agency working on Afghanistan in the 1990s and moved on to operational roles across the Middle East, recruiting spies and hunting terrorists. Later, he became a senior officer responsible for operations in Russia, which, as you'll hear, led to a fateful trip to Moscow that altered the course of his career and his life. Mark has chronicled all this and more in a new book, Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. It's part memoir, part management handbook. I sat down with Mark to talk about his career and to look back at the past 20 years since the 9-11 attacks. He talked about what the CIA got right, what it did wrong, and how he has come to peace with an unexpected sense of betrayal after he developed symptoms of Havana Syndrome, a mysterious and debilitating brain injury. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 10th, 2021. Mark Polymeropoulos on the CIA, 9-11, and Havana Syndrome. So, Mark, thanks for coming in to talk to us. We're going to talk about your book, Clarity in Crisis. We'll talk about your 26-year career at the CIA, uh, which uh, saw a lot of action in a lot of very interesting places. We'll get into all that. But to start, we're at this moment now where the country and the world really is taking stock of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Talk to us about where you were on 9-11, both your sort of day of experience, but also I want to talk about what that event did to alter the course of your career as an intelligence officer. Sure. And first of all, thanks. It's, it's, uh, it's great to be here. Yeah. Um, so, you know, on, on September 11, 2001, actually, I was not in New York City. And when I say this, it assumes that I was working in New York City. So let's just leave it at that. <laughs> um, but uh, my wife and I and our young daughter were in the Greek islands. And so we were not in the city at the time, but I'll tell you that my, my daughter's uh, daycare center, World Trade Center 5, was destroyed. 
you know, I, I don't think any of the children actually were hurt, but it just it just shows how close we were to the events. And and I remember talking my way onto and the the first, one of the first flights that was coming back from from Greece. And so we got back, and and you know, within you know within several days, I was walking around the wreckage uh, at Ground Zero, and then really much you know started well, not really started, but but certainly began a long journey of uh, of counterterrorism work. And so I was assigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Um, right after that, uh, I spoke Arabic. You know, I, I learned Arabic uh, you know, previously studying overseas in the Middle East. And so, you know, that was that was just the beginning of, of you know, almost 20 years, nearly my entire career, you know, working counterterrorism, although I did so even before that as well. So I was involved in counterterrorism before the events of 9-11, but certainly a very emotional, emotional time. Um, I'm going back, you know, this weekend to New York City yeah. for the 20th anniversary, some, some of the remembrance, you know, ceremonies. So I think it's the appropriate place for us to be. I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, and other places over the years. So yeah, it's a yeah, there's a there's a lot of you know kind of internal soul searching. I think by by you know a lot of us, and a lot of pride too mm-hmm. on what we accomplished. Was it hard for you when you were away on that day? Was your feeling your natural impulse to be like get back as quickly as possible? Get oh, yeah. into the fight. Really? Well, particularly since I saw <laughs> the, the building where I worked go yeah. down. And so, yes, of course, I, I, absolutely. And, and I remember, you know, we were on the Greek islands and my, you know, my father called uh, really upset and we, we had no television. We had no idea what was happening. And I immediately, you know, that night we made plans to go back to Athens. And then I was at the Athens airport with my family and, you know, just trying to get the first flight back. Pretty extraordinary. And, you know, there's, there's so many things to think about. But I think if you want to, you can dwell on a lot of the negative but one of the positive things that I that I hope people don't forget is, you know, I was living in New York City at the time, and we, we were there for a couple of years after. Is, you know, how New Yorkers came together is extraordinary. And there's a, there's a lot of public figures who really did some amazing things. You know, Rudy Giuliani, mm-hmm. the mayor of New York. Um, different time in his life. Different time <laughs> in his life. You know, you know, George W. Bush coming down, just incredible leadership. But ultimately, I remember, and I, I remember this clearly, you know, I lived on the Upper East Side, and there was a, you know, there was a pizza shop owned by an Egyptian. And, you know, my, and again, my wife and I, you know, I can talk about this now because my wife is retired, but my wife and I both worked at the agency and both were Middle East operations, you know, uh, officers, experts. And so I was really worried about this, this, you know, this Muslim Egyptian, that there would be a reaction against him. And I walked in there, you know, soon after when we got back and it was totally opposite. Hmm. You know, people really embraced him. And, and I know that's this, you know, uh, the, you know, the, I'm not I'm not sounding maybe I'm sounding a bit naive on here, but there really was this incredible feeling of unity in, in New York City. And I'll never forget that. And, you know, you can you can argue that you know, times have changed. But, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, so I'm not a native New Yorker. But I really you know, my daughter was born there and I was there, you know, certainly after the events of 9-11. It's, it plays very close to my heart. But I think I have a lot of pride in how how New Yorkers reacted. So what was it like being in counterterrorism before 9-11? Because, sure. I mean, this is that was not necessarily the hot spot to be in right. the CAA. You probably joined the agency thinking, I want to go fight the Russians and the Soviets. So, so what was that like? No, this, you know, and I'll tell you, it's, uh, I, you know, I joined the agency in, in 1993, January of 93. Yeah. I came out of uh, grad school at Cornell University, and I'd written my master's thesis on the rise of the Islamic movements in, in Algeria. So I'd spent some time there before my dad had, had taught there. And so I walk in the door, and of course I get put on the Afghan account. Uh, and at this time in 1993, nobody gets put on the yeah, Afghan account. The short there scroll. isn't an Afghan account. <laughs> I'm the most junior person. But you know how how you know how prophetic maybe. I mean, so you know one of the first uh, uh, issues I was I was dealing with, obviously with some people more senior, was the rise of the Afghan Arabs. And these were folks from from Arab nations across the Middle East who came 
to Afghanistan to fight the Soviet Union. They were, you know, with, with the Mujahideen, but there were their own separate units, maybe 10,000 in number, and they were really radicalized. And there was a lot of worry in the early 90s that they were going back, you know, fueling some of the Islamic movements uh, around the region. And, and of course, you know, one of the people who was on our radar was a, a young man named Osama bin Laden. There was also the issue of, you know, trying to recover our Stinger missiles. So, you know, the, the intelligence community was certainly interested in Afghanistan, but the U.S. government was not at all. And I was there, I remember in 1994, you know, with the creation of the Taliban, you know, certainly a creation fueled by the Pakistani intelligence service. And then between 96 and 01, the Taliban coming into power. Uh, and so, you know, on a very obscure desk in my first job at CIA, you know, I, I watched the recent events with, with you know, Mullah Berater, um, certainly being the head of the, the peace talks for the, for the Taliban in, in Doha. Now he's the deputy prime minister. He, he kind of ate our lunch diplomatically yeah. of two successive administrations. But incredible seeing, you know, what I kind of the, the same group that I first witnessed when I walked in the door. And, and you know, and frankly, counterterrorism was important at CIA. But I think it was really the first World Trade Center bombing where, where things took on you know, an even greater importance. And so, you know, ultimately, it's an issue that I ended up working my whole career, but then particularly after 9-11, a huge focus of that. Were you one of those people who saw the system sort of famously blinking red before the attacks? And when you saw it, did you think, I kind of, I knew this would happen or what was your, your um, So I was not in that unit in, you know, in, in the counterterrorism center. I was, I was doing some other things, you know, it was in, you know involved the middle, involving the Middle East for sure. I was in the Middle East and then, you know, just happened to come back to, to New York. But I certainly knew many people who were, you know, very alarmed by this. And so, you know, I, I, and I think that there was a, certainly a feeling after 9-11 amongst my colleagues that, you know, we had failed, even with all the warnings that were given, you know, and it's, and counterterrorism is hard. You know, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're a soccer goalie, but you can't even let up one goal. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to, I'm going to get all these, all the soccer analogies wrong. Pitch a shutout. I don't <laughs> that, that would seem you know, right. Yeah. You know, but ultimately, I watched Ted Lasso. That sounds right. That's right. But it's a zero fail uh, mission. And so, you know, there was, there was a feeling that, you know, on, on September 12th that, you know, that we had let one through, but there was an incredible resolve after that. And then that's when, you know, I think the U.S. government did some pretty, you know, and particularly the intelligence community did some pretty extraordinary things over the years to, you know, to help, um, you know, thwart any kind of future attacks on the homeland. But then, you know, then, then there's, you know, been counterterrorism operations for, you know, for the last several decades that, you know, many Americans don't know about, yeah. but have certainly kept people safe. And so I, I have a lot of pride in that, and, and I will continue to do so, even with, and we, you know, we were talking before when we walked in, there's, there's a lot of kind of navel-gazing right now about, you know, woe is us, what has 9-11 done to America and the rise of the security state. And I understand that, that's fine, but I think for those of us who are really involved in in counterterrorism over the years, there's a lot of pride in, in that we helped keep Americans safe, and and you know I'll, I'll continue to believe that um, it's okay to to take a look and criticize in our country what we you know what we've done some aspects of it, but but ultimately you know for those of us who've seen you know Al Qaeda and others you know upfront in personal like we're looking at each other right now, I'm pretty confident we did the right thing a lot of the time. CIA officers, of course, they were the first they were the first boots on the ground, right? Americans. Famously going in on Operation Jawbreaker, right? right? And you can see the helicopter that they took that it's out there now it's at the campus at, at Langley, right? right. Did, did you know the guys who went in there? Sure. Did you want to go? Uh, I mean, everyone wanted to go. I think there was a, you know, I, I can only imagine back in the counterterrorism center, I think everyone volunteered immediately. I find it, I, you know, and certainly I, I was not on the first team's end. I know, you know, a, a great many of those 
who did go. And many of the ones who went in were not young guys either. No, but you know, trip. But that's you know, that's also they were the very experienced. Well, they were experienced from our paramilitary side of the house. There were some other you know case officers who had you know requisite languages. You know, whether it's Uzbek or Dari or others, which is what you need. But make no mistake, we also had prior relationships with the Northern Alliance, and so you know that's one of the things that CIA does. You know, I make it. I try to make a compelling argument that. You know, we never come home. So the idea of, you know, the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, well, you know, it's, we're a forward-facing, you know, unit. And so we do have folks who maintain ties uh, around the world. But, but ultimately, I got to Afghanistan my first time in February, March of 2002. Um, so certainly not in one of the first teams. But I, like I did. Early on, up, yeah. And, I, and, and we all begged and pleaded to go. I mean, this was, you know, we just felt that it was our, our duty. I ended up going to, to Kandahar, you know, probably woefully unprepared. But really, just you know, I felt that it was the it was the right thing to do, and I think we did. We certainly did some good, and and ultimately, you know, I think there's in tremendous pride in, in CIA that we were the first boots on the ground. I mean, there's there's just no question about that. You know, Donald Rumsfeld, I think, you know, has has in his memoirs and his talks, even in some of the accounts, um, I think there's bitterness at the you know within the U.S. military that CIA was there first, and so I think there's a little bit of, you know, these you know, God bless my. You know, my my brothers and sisters in the U.S. military, but the fact that we were there first, there's a there's some pride in that. Yeah, and there's always there's always a friendly rivalry. Right? Oh yeah. Well, we'll talk more about Afghanistan, sure. but let's talk more about the, about the book now. So, I mean, clarity and crisis: leadership lessons from the CIA. I'm curious why, rather than write just a straight memoir of your experience, you wanted to do that, but sort of wrap it in with a book that is basically about management and leadership in a large organization, right? right? If you strip out the stories of you running around the Middle East and recruiting agents, and we'll talk about that, and that they're in the book, it reads like a book that you could give somebody who was going to work for like, you know, Intel or General Electric sure. or wherever. So right. why did you decide to take that approach rather than just write, you know, Mark Polymeropoulos, my life as sure. a CIA officer? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I don't think my career was all that remarkable. I mean, you know, and, and <laughs> I say not? that. No, I mean, I say it because there's, there's, you know, just as many folks like myself who've, who've done, you know, just as many great things and then, you know, failed a lot along the way as well. I mean, I think, you know, ultimately I, wa- I wanted to write a book on leadership because that's what I really liked at the end of my career. So the best part of my job was as a street case officer, an operations officer. That's where you spot assess, you know, develop, recruit, and then handle agents, spies. Right. Yep. You know, when you get kind of senior, you don't do that as much. And so the great part of my career was, you know, you know, or, you know early on, but in the last, you know, five, five, six years, you get promoted to, to jobs. And I had, a, I had some senior jobs uh, at the end of my career, including, you know, my last one, which was quite senior. Uh, and so you're doing, you know, bureaucracy and process and personnel and management issues. But the part that I still was able to do was some of the mentoring, some of the leadership piece. And then, and, and I really did decide to write the book when I, when, I, when I did kind of realize that, hey, I'm really good at this, but only now. So I was not a good leader for a lot of my career. And I think a lot of my old colleagues would probably agree. You know, and I learned, you know, from failing a lot. Um, I think, you know, in the book, I hope it comes out, you know, kind of one of the key concepts I I talk about is humility. But ultimately, I, I, you know, I learned a leadership style that really served me well. But it was only based on all the experience that I gained. And and one thing CIA does not do well is leadership training. So Mm -hmm. I learned it all. And, you know, in the U.S. military, if you retire as a colonel, you probably spent two years at least, you know, going to leadership schools at CIA. I think we have, you know, one or one week every, every several years. And so it's, it's not enough every couple of years, but, but ultimately there, there was a seminal moment. And I, and I talk about it in the book. It's actually the last principle where we were running a counterterrorism operation in which there was a, there was a senior high value target. And I was actually back at our headquarters, but it was, it was a, a unit in the field that I had led before. 
And there was a lot of uncertainty. And and and, and ultimately, we wanted to, you know, we had a target. And by the way, all this has been cleared already. By right, right. You're so not, not saying anything and the CIA doesn't but, know what but you're going to say. You know, the, yeah. the target was cleared for, you know, for either a kill or capture mission by by us, the U.S. military, et cetera. But it was someone who was really responsible for the deaths of a lot of Americans. And, and ultimately, there was a lot of uncertainty at CIA headquarters if we should go through with this. But as I sat there, you know, in kind of on the on what we call the floor, you know, an, an, an operational area where there were a lot of senior CI officers around who had to make these decisions, it was pretty clear to me what had to be done, uh, because I knew the team who was on the ground. These these were this was my previous team. I knew the agents, the Afghans that we recruited, who were helping us, you know, put this individual, you know, quote on the X. My team had been through a lot of adversity before. I had trained them well. We had developed this really close-knit unit. And so when it came time to someone kind of wandered over to me as I was sitting watching and said, Mark, you're the last boss over there. You know, I know you're not in charge now, but what do you think? And I said, 100% do it. And a very senior officer said, you know, if you're wrong, it's your career. And I said, that's fine. And afterwards, you know, people around me, they were like, holy crap. Like, you know, you really, you know, are you sure about that? And I said, actually, yeah. And it worked. And so the operation was successful. But that's when I thought to myself, you know what? I think I have something here. And I can I can kind of put this down on paper uh, because, again, it's all about, you know, being in your happy place in the gray. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole the whole the whole principle of clarity and crisis is how you lead in situations where there is a lack of lack of situational awareness, where there's ambiguity. And again, we call it we call it that gray area. But that's your happy place and you're comfortable there. But I think and, you would have to be in the agency. Right. I mean, this is something that I think that like people misapprehend about. The nature of intelligence is, and Hollywood gets this wrong all the time, portraying the agency as this kind of omnipotent, all-knowing force. It's almost always ambiguous. Right. I mean, look at the the famous call on whether or not to launch the raid uh, in Abbottabad. Right. Um, You know, there was a lot of people. Some people said, I I know bin Laden's there. A lot of people said 50%. And and that's part the movie got right, yeah. But that's that's right. But 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 ultimately, that is what intelligence is all about. Yeah. Um, it's certainly not predictive in terms of time and place. I mean, the whole this whole you know controversy of whether the the fall of the Afghan government you know was there an intelligence failure or not. I think that's wildly missing the point. You know, you know, our job is a warning function. You know, but but ultimately, you know, going back to to, to that one instance, I I decided, I thought of myself. You know, I, I think I have something here on leadership principles. And and again, I didn't want to write a, a memoir. I mean, I, I'm I'm embarrassed enough as much as I'm in the media now for different issues. It, it is uncomfortable to me. My friends, you know, tease me about it. But ultimately, you know, I wanted to write this book on on leadership, and then of course throw in some kind of biographic details too, because there there are some interesting stories. I mean, one of the fun things about the book is that in each principle, you know, I, I tell you know several stories, uh, operational stories that were cleared by the CIA's Publication Review Board, but they're pretty compelling, and they you know they make a point and. And one of the things that, you know, I, I, I think there's some things I, I'm good at in life and some things that I'm not good at. I'm a pretty good storyteller. Yeah. So, yeah. so you know, that's why I really enjoy it. No, you are a good storyteller. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed your stories as we've right. gotten to know each other. Um, it, well, I'm curious, when you started your career, were you an officer who looked at retiring officers writing memoirs and thought, oh, that's pretty cool, or thinking like, no, you're talking out of school. Yeah. You shouldn't be doing that. And then what made you, if, if so, like when did you decide, yeah, I'm going to do this. Right. I'm gonna, so I'm going to talk publicly. So there's, there's, there's two different parts of this. One is speaking out on current affairs mm-hmm. and current events, and the other is writing a book. Yeah. I think all of us, you know, there's an ingrained culture at CIA that you know, you're not supposed to do either. And for me, and, you know, I, I can't be hypocritical here because I've done both. But there's a reason I did uh, I did both. One the, on the leadership piece, I think I was okay with it because it, because again it's not this is not a hero worshiping book about myself. In fact, again, I think the the book is all about humility and, and how a lot of my failings kind of led to lessons learned. And so it's I'm not 
you know, you know, thumping my chest. I joke around with all my friends from, you know, from Navy SEALs. You know, this is not a book about charging up the hill. And, and certainly when you're a SEAL and BUDS training, you know, I, I always joke with them, did they get their book deal then? But, um, but it's not like that. And, and so that, that to me was, was important. This is not a book about bragging at all. It's a book a lot about, about failing and dealing with adversity. But on the, on the, on the part about uh, current events, and it's a fair question. And so as I retired, you know, in July of 2019, of course, this was in the, in the midst of the Trump administration. And, and when you're inside the CIA, of course, you, we are totally apolitical, but I retired. And there were a lot of things that bothered me, um, particularly uh, former President Trump's um, attacks on the intelligence community. So I, I thought to myself, you know, maybe I want to be one of those, you know, few CIA officers who, who talk about this. Because this is not, I'm not talking about policy. I'm talking about, you know, attacks on, on the profession, the men and women, and I thought it was, it was yeah, grossly the unfair, of the, the integrity of the place. So I went to a couple, you know, former, you know, former officers, including, you know, several former directors who I know, and I asked them, I said, what do you think of this? And they, were very, they really encouraged it. I went and I talked to other former members of, of CIA who had gone off in public, but I, I you know, I, really, I kind of did my homework on this, and I thought it just was a unique time and place where, where my voice would be important. And it's turned out it's something that I've, you know, that I've, I've enjoyed doing. I certainly am more comfortable now. I look back at some of the first, you know, you know, either with, whether it's a podcast like this or, or TV hits, and I kind of cringe. Mm. I, I don't want to look at that. But you get more comfortable. I think we probably talked about this, too. You yeah, get more yeah. comfortable in front of the camera. Well, it, or, it takes time. It, it's, it, it, yeah. it, it's, it's unnatural. It's, a, it's right. a presentational way of speaking that is not how people normally talk to one another when but, they go on TV. But I did this, and, and, and this, is, this is my, you know, really kind of my pure kind of reasoning for it is that I really do believe that CIA is an indispensable institution. And of course, there's warts. I mean, for God's sakes, you know, I was, I was born in Greece. So my, like my entire Greek family is angry with because, you know, the CIA and the U.S. government support in the 1970s for the right wing Greek government, the junta. So they still remember this. It's 2021. They okay, Sort of. Not really. They haven't forgiven. But, but you know, but certainly there's warts in the, in the past and what CIA has done. But I believe it's an indispensable organization. And I wanted to try to explain that to the American people. And I think I've I've tried to be successful on that. I'm not a cheerleader for this, uh, for the organization. But, but you know, oftentimes, um, you know, we're blamed for a lot of things that I feel, you know, that, that was not just. And so it's, I think it's important to have that voice. And it, most times I'm credible. <laughs> so not always. Often so, you're always highly quotable. It's highly quotable. But, you know, the, the, the worst thing is, you know, the, Twitter where, you know, you, you can, you know, shoot something out. And then afterwards you're like, oh, God, why did I why do, you, I do, do that? Do you get into Twitter scrapes that you regret? All the time. I was late today that. because I was <laughs> arguing with people on Twitter, you know. Because, again, there's all this kind of questioning about the entire 20-year yeah. uh, war on terrorism. And I, I took offense to some of that. And, of course, I ended up being late. So. Yeah. Well, that, that's, well, that's all right. <laughs> that's it's free, for free speech. But that must be kind of, in a way, I don't know, is it liberating? Because I mean, you have to spend your entire career... I mean, in complete secrecy. Yeah. I mean, probably not telling many members of your family what you actually do for a living. Mm-hmm. Now that's all out there, and you can debate people in sure. real time on yeah. the internet. I mean, is that? I mean, obviously, you find it pretty compelling because you do a lot of it. But like, I mean, is it? I mean, how much do you ever just find yourself saying like, "What a complete opposite culture this oh, sure. is from the yeah. one I worked in." No, for, and, and so so when you join CIA, you do so knowing full well that that you know you can't respond, and that our successes are going to be in the shadows, and our failures will be you know thrown all over the front page of every newspaper, including yours, including ours. And so, but that's just that's just part of the whole yeah. part of the whole deal. But I do think it's important to have those you know former officers who are willing to say something every now and then. So you know, and and to call it like they see it. And so you know, one of the one of the really interesting times for me, even since retirement, is the last several weeks with the Afghan withdrawal. I made no secret of my support during the last election for, you know, for, for President Biden. I sent out pictures. I interned for him, you know, between, you know, when I graduated from Cornell. 
And so I was very supportive of him. Yet over the last two weeks, I've been, you know, quite vocal and, and you know, voicing my opinion how I think they've really botched this Afghan withdrawal. In fact, the entirety of it, you know, I, I believe we should have left a residual force. I think probably some people in the administration are annoyed at that, but I have to call it the way I see it. And I don't, I think I would lose credibility if I didn't. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I want this administration to succeed, but I think they, they made a, you know, a pretty colossal mistakes, many of them, um, with this withdrawal. So you have to be honest. And so I think that's, you know, I think for those of us, you know, who, who are former intelligence officers who speak out, you know, you can certainly have your political leanings one way or the other. And it's, it's, I chose to, to kind of indicate, you know, where I am on that, but it doesn't mean you can't criticize an administration who you support. And I think, you know, that's talking about Twitter fights. I'm, you know, I think a lot of people were upset with me on that. My parents were upset with me. Really? My dad was like, would you stop going on Fox News? And I said, no, they invite me on. And so, you know, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm not, I'm not bashing, you know, the president per se, but I'm saying the handling of this was really poor and they have to fix this. And Do you so, think it's hard though, I think for some people, I mean, this is a more, this is not a reflection on you. It's more the culture that we're in where politics has become completely tribal. Yep. That if you show up on Fox News, even your own father might presume you're just being like somehow a sock puppet for Republicans, right. even though you yeah. you would never do that. But right. I mean, it must make it difficult when you're trying to have nuanced discussions about intelligence and you know in a free society and operational right. aspects to kind of have everything reduced that way. Well, you know, the TV hits are hard because it is you know 45 seconds or or, or a minute, and and that's why doing a podcast like this, I love these. Right. Because you really can jump into to a lot more of you know um, what really matters, uh, you know. But but that's the, the that's where we are in the media. Yeah. But but I think it would be a mistake. I mean, I also would you know sat back and watched for years, frankly, you know, Congressman Swalwell on Fox. I thought that was fantastic what he did. Um, he had the guts to go there and kind of debate the other side. Now there, I don't have a you know one side or another. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I talk about foreign policy and national security issues. Even if, you know, I, I made it known, it was, it was pretty well known that I supported President Biden, but I also, you know, voted, voted for George W. Bush in the past. So I'm all over the place, just like I think a lot of national security um, folks are who are, we really are, you know, in the middle. And, you know, as, as it's funny because, you know, some, some friends of mine from the left are, you know, again, were saying, they were, they were, they were disappointed in me that I would, I would criticize the administration. I think they forget where I worked. <laughs> you know, so ideologically, I might really not be with you on a lot of things. I mean, I'm not from the left. I worked for the CIA in operations. You know, I spent years and years, you know. You it know, does still conservative, doesn't it? it well, it, it goes to kind of fundamental notions. Do you, know, do you believe we should go out, you know, aggressively, offensively kill our enemies? I would say yes. I think a lot of people on the left would kind of look askance at that. And that's okay. But to, to you know to, to try to kind of uh, you know pigeonhole me on one side or the other you know you know so I have I have a, and I think I have I have a lot of strong kind of political beliefs. Um, I also worked for the CIA for many years, so it's hard to kind of put me in one category, you know, into the left or to the right. A, a big chunk of your career, you, you know, you, you talk about being a manager, obviously, and the sure. more the further you go up the chain, sort of the farther you are from the field. But a big part of your career was spent. Uh, in some really inhospitable places, right. you know, uh, very, you know, you saw a lot of violence, a lot of operational action. And I say this as kind of a preamble for saying, you know, this region that we're talking about with, with regards to Afghanistan, you know, the dynamics, you know, the sacrifices, the costs. You talked about wanting to leave a residual force in place. And I think a lot of your former colleagues agree with you, right. sort of making the argument, why couldn't we leave something there that prevented the kind of cascading effects that we're seeing now? But I wonder, you know, given that the president was pretty clear he was going to pull out, and even the previous president had cut a deal. What are some specific things you think we should have done right. to, if not necessarily 
I don't know that anybody could have prevented the Taliban from mm-hmm. taking over the country. Your agency had assessed that that was likely to happen in fairly short order. CIA doesn't make predictions per se, as you said. But like, what could have been done to mitigate some of the the chaos that we're seeing? Or do you think that this chaos is unavoidable and maybe we're even overstating it? So I, I don't think I, I think that uh, you know our actions certainly kind of proved to be an accelerant. Um, I think it was avoidable. And, and so, and, and again, this is what a perfect opportunity here because we can have a, a real nuanced conversation. There is no binary choice like the Biden administration claims between staying and leaving. And so what I would have argued for was, well, first of all, the Doha agreement, you know, the Taliban were in, were in violation of that. This is the one that President Trump. This is the one President Trump uh, and Zal Khalilazad, you know, the, the special representative negotiated, uh, which was going to lead to, to, to the U.S. withdrawal. But it was conditions based and the Taliban were violating those conditions. So the Biden administration, quite surprisingly, against everything else they were doing with other agreements that the, the, the Trump administration either pulled out of or. Uh, you know, they said they were actually going to kind of move forward with this. I think that surprised a lot of people. We could have said the Taliban are in violation back in the negotiating table. And one of them being that they hadn't forsworn terrorism. Al-Qaeda. Yep, terrorism. Al-Qaeda. And so ultimately you'd get back into a negotiating strategy in which ultimately there would have been, this is in my view, there there would have been, you know, kind of protracted negotiations, you know, with, over several years in which you'd have some kind of transitional government but the old Afghan government would still be involved in some fashion. This is going to be messy. There's going to be violence, sure. But here's what you do still have. You still have a U.S. embassy there. Mm-hmm. We don't have that. You still have an Afghan intelligence service. We don't have that anymore. And you still have a small residual footprint of, of U.S. forces to, to certainly you know, monitor counterterrorism threats. And so I think it would have been messy. But there was, a, there was, there was probably a, a point where you know, we certainly could have you know, stuck around for several more years and, and tried to figure something out. And, and frankly, of course, let the Afghan government itself negotiate with the Taliban. That's the other part of the Doha agreement that was really flawed. You know, this was the United States negotiating with the Taliban outside of the Afghan government. So uh, I think that there, there could have been much you know, smarter choices. And these were choices, I think, that, was, that actually, you know, there was almost unanimity in the national security apparatus in suggesting to, to President Biden, and but you know he had made his mind up. Okay, so let's say say we were going to withdraw. So that's number one. Number two would be, you know, how do we do this? Well, it's it seems to me, and again I'm on the outside that the U.S. military said, okay, we're out, and they just picked up and essentially left. The State Department sitting there looking around, saying, we we want to try to keep the embassy. Uh, meanwhile, you have the whole issue, which for many veterans groups for months were screaming about, about the SIVs, the special immigrant visa status holders. These were, these were tens of thousands of Afghans who we really owe you know, morally to get them out. Now they're stuck. And then finally, what I think was a big mistake is when the, the administration started, in essence, gaslighting uh, the Afghan government and military, who, frankly, as survivors, and this is what they do for, for three decades, the way Afghan you know, there's transitions in Afghanistan is based on people switching sides. They saw the writing on the wall. Clearly, the the, the, the military and uh, the Afghan military and the government dissolved. But I thought that the Biden administration and, and their gaslighting proved to be the accelerant. And so there was just so many policy choices that I think were made in error. And, you know, I, it's, it's okay to criticize that. I think in the after action, it's going to be very interesting to see. And there will be one because there's already, you know, Congress is certainly interested. How much was the intelligence community really listened to? You know, I get a sense that, you know, and this is from, you know, uh, not not my friends inside telling me, but knowing the deep bench that we had and the expertise, uh, I get a sense that uh, that a lot of the intelligence community assessments, briefings, et cetera, probably were not listened to. And, and I think that's where, you know, unfortunately led to the kind of the, the state we're at now. Do you think it was a mistake to announce in advance a date for withdrawal? 
Well, you can make a very strong argument that that was not smart. You know, it's 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 basically you're you're kind of announcing the end and and just giving kind of the Taliban a, a target date to kind of hold on to. But but even if you do that, it's a condition based agreement, and the Taliban violated those conditions. Yet we stuck with it. It I think you know in, the, in there's going to be you know many you know you know graduate level or I mean, not even graduate level high school classes uh, on diplomacy that are taught on how, how, you know, how poor we, we, we acted on this. And it's just something that I, I certainly, I think none of us can really understand. You know, it, this is, I, I do think this is a you know, dark stain on U.S. diplomacy. And, and most importantly, you know, we are where we are now. So, you know, kind of, how do we get out of this? I mean, I think that's, it is fair to kind of say, okay, this happened. This was really poorly done, but we need to kind of dig ourselves out of this. And that's the next step. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's LinkedIn.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had Lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. What's the likelihood, do you think, that al-Qaeda could reconstitute itself sure. inside Afghanistan? So I think, you know, we can't, you can't, you know, talk in hyperbole and say it's going to happen tomorrow. I saw certain senators out there, I think it was, you know, uh, you know, so, so it's right, like today we are not at risk for a 9-11 style attack. 
But it is entirely appropriate to worry, as you know, someone who did counterterrorism for a long time, that that the conditions are ripe for, uh, and I wouldn't even say al-Qaeda to reconstitute. They were there already. I would say just strengthen again. You know, there's five to 7,000, you know, hardcore, you know, uh, uh, extremists who were let out of prison mm-hmm. right outside of Bagram Air Base, the Parwan prison. And so, you know, so ultimately their bench is now strengthened. Um, certainly there's ungoverned spaces and you have, in essence, a terrorist entity in, in charge with a deep affinity for al-Qaeda. I mean, you know, you know the <laughs> al-Qaeda leader Ayman Zawahiri, you know, pledged allegiance in 2016 to the, the current Taliban emir. And so, you know, Siraj Haqqani is the minister of interior. He is the son of the, the founding member of, of the Haqqani group, you know, with a $10 million price tag on his head. And so for, for, from the United States. So ultimately, I think the conditions are ripe for al-Qaeda, who does have an external focus to plot attacks. We're not saying that the Taliban is going to be doing this, but they certainly, you know, will allow for other other extremist groups, other terrorist groups to do so. So I think, you know, what looks like Groundhog Day for a lot of us is that, you know, these are a lot of the conditions that existed you know, before 2001. And so I think there's there's a lot of, uh, you know, consternation in the intelligence community, particularly when I think there's broad agreement, really amazingly enough, amongst both Republicans or Democrats, that we have to be looking toward China. There's bigger strategic threats. There is a finite resource the finite number of resources at CIA and other places, you know, I think I'm fairly certain that the thought was to shift those towards Asia. Right. Well, we have a counterterrorism issue again in South Asia, in Afghanistan. And so I think that's uh, that's unfortunate and that's where resources are going to have to be allocated. I mean, do you just – you talked about the CIA never really coming home. Like you're kind of always there. How is the agency – going to collect in Afghanistan. I mean, right. you also pointed out there was, I think, a presumption that we would have an embassy. Yep. Normally, our intelligence officers sure. operate out of embassies, and particularly you know, in a hostile place, that becomes even more valuable. Right. So how does the agency do its job under the current conditions? So, so you know, a country's counterterrorism posture, certainly the United States, and our ability to, to find terrorists, frankly, is based on what I, I call it a triad of, of, of counterterrorism capabilities. So you have human, that's human intelligence. You have signals, intelligence, intercepts, and then you have ISR, which is intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance aircraft overhead. And and if the conditions are right, which they were previously in Afghanistan, we're really good at that, at monitoring groups. And in fact, you know, if 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 timing is right, you know, taking kinetic action. So let's look what's happened in Afghanistan on, on, on this. So you know, particularly on human human intelligence, those are spies. Those are individuals who are going to penetrate terrorist groups. Well, we don't have an embassy anymore. Um, and without, you know, you're going to laugh when I say this without getting into more detail because I'll get in trouble, although you'll roll your eyes, is, you know, obviously embassies conceivably could be intelligence collection platforms. That doesn't exist anymore. That's not good. Yeah. Number two, and which is really critical, we don't have a partner on the ground. So the Afghan Intelligence Service, which is something that the U.S. government built, um, which is critical, particularly in recruiting and, you know, and running uh, Afghan agents, because of just their their kind of cultural understanding, obviously linguistic abilities, that doesn't exist anymore whatsoever. So all of a sudden, on the human piece, human spies, we don't have them anymore. That's extraordinary. And so you know you, you can't sit here and make an argument that we're that you know we're in a better collection posture. And and, and frankly, the administration hasn't. Director CI Director Burns has been very clear on this. And I think so is the uh, Chairman of Joint Chief Staff uh, Milley, as well as as Secretary of Defense Austin, is that okay? We're we're going to be hurting on this. Let's go to the aircraft. Let's go to, you know, the ISR piece. You know, so we had bases in Afghanistan. Well, now, you know, reportedly we're flying ISR missions from the Persian Gulf. That's farther away. Again, it's a finite number of platforms which have to now travel a longer distance, which means, you know, their transit time, their loiter time, everything gets affected. Uh, and, and so, again, so this is just it just makes it harder. Is it impossible? No. 
you know, and and you know, and certainly, you know, you know, we can we can try. And then and then the last piece, and, and make no mistake on, on the ISR piece, we have to overfly other countries. Mm-hmm. Other countries have to give us rights to do so. Given where we are in 2021 now and our relationships, um, whether it's Central Asian countries, which now you know uh, certainly have the, you know the dominance from Moscow, or the government of Pakistan, which we don't have great relations with, gaining those rights to fly over for ISR, I think, is going to be much harder. There was a lot more sympathy after 9/11 from countries. Certainly, the Pakistanis didn't have a leg to stand on, and so uh, so I think you know we're a, we're in a, we're in a tougher position now. I mean, I, I often think about, and we've talked about this before. I think. Weirdly, being a journalist and being a case officer are very similar right. kind of disciplines, right? Yeah. You have to get sources, you have to verify information. Right. Everything, though, that you do depends on access to That's your right. sources. And what you're describing here is one in which, when one leg of that triad has been, I mean, effectively Decimated. eliminated. I mean, yep. presumably there may be some residual source networks right. in Afghanistan, but. You know, managing them is a is a tactile endeavor. Right? Right. You you need to be with the people that you're trying to recruit. And I wonder, do you think that you know, presumably some human function will try to continue? Right. Does it make it more difficult for the agency now to recruit those sources <laughs> right. in Afghanistan and elsewhere, yeah. given how people have watched this pullout and understanding that they're that there are still Afghans who worked for us who have not made it out. And the, the story has become that we have left people behind. So how does that affect the CIA's ability to get people to trust the agency and, you know, tell them secrets and in some cases you know, risk their lives and betray right. their own country? So, you know, as, as, a, as a case officer, you're always looking for motivations. And so, and this is just goes kind of to the bare bones and why someone would talk to you, why someone would provide secret information for, you know, to, and, you know sometimes it's going to be financial Sometimes it's ideological, but many times, particularly in conflict zones, they're going to side with the, you know, certainly with an entity that that they think is going to win, but also that's going to uphold its word. And I think, and I think that's where we're going to have a lot of problems now because you know the, the Afghans should be, in essence, bitter. Um, you know, one of the things that we did in Afghanistan, and and you know, and and I know everyone hates this idea of talking about nation building, but can you imagine? If you are a teenager in Kabul right now, you actually don't know. You wouldn't remember. You weren't alive when the Taliban was in power. But what do you know? You know that you have a cell phone. You know that there's girls in school. Um, you know that there's opportunity. And, and despite the rampant corruption of the a- Afghan government, all of a sudden, all of that is taken away from you. We're a medieval death cult. And that's what the Taliban are. And, and by the way, this new Taliban government is not Taliban 2.0. But a, a medieval death cult is now in power. is going to take away all those freedoms. So I would, you know, in my view, I think the, the problem will be not only will these, these Afghans be, of course, have a hatred for the Taliban, they're going to have a lot of bitterness towards the United States. Because, you know, when you give someone something and then take it away, it's almost as if you never should have given it right. to them in the first place. Right. And so I think we're going to have a harder time, you know, recruiting agents, you know, worldwide. Look, you know, one of the things that my job was as a CIA officer was, you know, particularly as I served in conflict zones, is I would go into countries into places like I did in Afghanistan, like I did earlier, you know, when I went to the, live with the Kurds in northern Iraq before the war. This is in, you know, December of 2002. So what we're trying to do is gain partners. You know, the United States track record is not great in upholding those, those assurances that we, that we gave. And so, you know, I think a lot of people will see this as a betrayal. And so it's going to take a hell of a lot of case officering, you know, amongst CI officers in the future uh, when we do have to go into places. Because I think that the, on the back of everyone's mind is going to be how we, how we left Afghanistan. You write in the book about your experiences as a case officer. And there's one story in particular you talk about. I believe you were in Iraq and, you know, an agent that you had recruited and managed right. w- was killed. 
Can you talk about that and, sure. and the effect that that had on you, both as just a case officer, but just the personal relationship right. that you have with that person? So, you know, that's when I talk about the one of the principles I talk about is it has to do with adversity. The principle, I, I'd say adversity is the performance enhancing drug to to success. And, and so, you know, but ultimately I, I say that adversity is really your super fuel on how you grow. So you, you know, so anyone in any unit, whether it's, you know, in business, private sector, public sector is, go, is going to go through tough times. It's how you respond and learn. And, and so I tell some kind of, you know, very kind of graphic stories. And, and in this case, it was a story when, you know, we're up in Northern Iraq before the war and we had recruited an Iraqi who was providing us order of battle information. And I was like, how many tanks, planes? Exactly. So this is something that the Pentagon certainly is interested, of course, back at CIA headquarters. So it's, 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 it's really, it's basic stuff, but it's the disposition of Iraqi units. It's just important. And ultimately, you know, and I was, I was the case officer kind of in charge of this individual and, and, you know, our headquarters was very excited about it. And, And ultimately what happened is we met him too much. Meetings were too frequent. He was crossing over from enemy lines and he was caught and he was tortured and executed. And that had a really kind of profound effect on me because uh, ultimately, uh, I am responsible. And one of the things in the book that I talk about, I talk about that kind of that sacred relationship between a case officer and an agent. You can say it's a marriage, it's a romance, but ultimately, these are individuals who, particularly in conflict zones, you know, put their lives in our hands. And so, you know, we are not supposed to screw up. And in this case, I did. And so ultimately, you know, what, what I took from that is I, I learned from that. Um, I learned a lot more about patience, about not kind of bending to kind of political pressure back home. And so ultimately, so, you know, so it's something where, where I, I, I talk about in the book years later in an operation in Afghanistan, um, I kind of did things a little differently um, where we just, you know, you know, executed an operation where, you know, I, I knew that there was a need to get something done. This was tracking a high value target, but we were going to take the time. We're going to do things right. And I always thought back to that operation from, from Iraq. And, you know, it's one of those things that's, as I look back on my career, it was, you know, a question you asked before about, you know, did I want to write just a memoir? And I didn't because... I had a hell of a lot of success, and I got a whole bunch of fancy medals in my basement gathering dust, but I had a tremendous amount of failure, too. And I've, you know, buried agents and, and the indigenous personnel. You know, when I was in Afghanistan, the commander of our indigenous unit, he was killed, and I remember pulling him out of a vehicle with blood all over my hands. And then, you know, tragically, I've had colleagues who were killed, too, in, in operations that I was involved in. And, and so there's, you know, there's a lot that I'm proud of. There's a lot of things I'm not so proud of where I really screwed up. And so that's, but that's, that's the whole essence of that principle about dealing with adversity because you have to kind of learn from it. And that's how you, that's how you grow. You read a lot too about your family in the book, yeah. I mean, your two kids, your wife, your parents, but particularly your wife and your children. And as you said, your wife is now a recently retired officer right. from the agency. There, there's actually a very kind of, you know, pretty moving and even a little bit like um, chilling moment in the book where I think it's your son who is talking to your, to your wife and says, do we torture people? Right, yeah. Tell that story. Yeah, so so you know, I mean, first of all, kids are smart. Yeah, and so how old was he when he asked this? Oh boy, I, I'm, this this also must must all been in a time. You know, at, at one point you have to tell your kids what you what you do. Right. Um, okay. And so, but, how do you know when to do that? By the way. Well, you don't know, and when you do tell them, they kind of knew already. I see. And so let's, let's just start with that. Yeah, I mean, they pay I remember attention. When, when 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 we finally told you know told our kids, you know, both my my daughter and my, both of them are in college now, but. Uh, so this was when they were probably, I don't know, 10 and 12. And they both kind of rolled their eyes and said, oh, we knew. And we said, well, how? And and they said, well, you know, Dad, like we flew back on like, you know, C-17 airplanes. and Or there's like Arab princes at our house or predator pilots or Navy SEALs. There's all this weird what mix of What did they folks. think you did for a living? State Department. Okay. And, 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 and they know, didn't know what that meant, bro. Um, but, you know. I thought you stamped visas. Right. And, and, but, but ultimately what was uh, most amusing is one day, 
you know, Mike Morell, who was the acting director, yeah. you know, came over to watch a hockey game. And so he rolled in to our house and with all the kind of armed, you know, armored suburbans and all these guys, big dudes with, you know, who were outside. And, and so the kids later on said, you know, we, we know that's not normal. And so we thought we were really clever, but they, they knew. But, but ultimately, you know, the kids are smart and they read the news. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the CIA has been involved in the war on terrorism and, and some, you know, some, some controversial issues. So literally, and this is the beauty of a, of a child, when, when they say, hey, hey, dad, you know, do you torture people um, or do we drone people? Because that's what they hear on TV. And, and, you know, you just try to find ways to, uh, I think, I think, I, I can't remember exactly the, I, the, the joke I had with the, the drone piece. And I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way is, you know, I, I think, you know, we said something like, you know, how many or something stupid like that, just because you're trying to disarm your child from not being upset about stuff. Right. And with right. the tortured piece, I think my wife said, these are just enhanced interrogation me- measures and, uh, and no, your dad had nothing to do with it. And so um, it's a way just to kind of, you know, you know, you deal with a young child who's asking, you know, legitimate questions. And then later on, they're both in college. And I've had very, you know, deep conversations with them um, about things that I thought the agency did right and wrong. Um, they can make their own decisions on that. I mean, I, I think it's important for, for them to know um, the sacrifices that, you know, my wife and I made. You know, I spent almost three years away from them after 9-11. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. And I saw a lot of bad things. And, and you know, I, when I came back from Iraq, I had, you know, really bad PTSD. And, you know, ultimately, I think by the end of my career, I just kind of broke uh, but all, but you know, it's, kids are smart, and so you got to be honest with them. Have their views changed? I mean, do they? Does your son or your daughter look back on this and have? Do they object to what you did? Oh, sure. I mean, so my son is. My kids are great, and they're so wildly different. My daughter will come back, and and you know, she basically thinks the whole war on terrorism was a, was was a giant mistake, and you know, and she is an incredible, amazing kind of social activist. And meanwhile, my son, who is you know probably would be, and and he's actually very moderate in his politics, but he's, he's pretty happy with probably some extreme things okay. <laughs> that the U.S. Okay. government could do. And so, our, you know, our, our dinner table conversations on this you know, totally degenerate and it's awful. Um, but it's great. But that's what I want. But, but, you know, I don't want to tell them, hey, your dad was perfect or what the organization he worked right. for was perfect. They should have their own views on this thing. And that's, that's 100% fine. And do you think that, I mean, do you ever, do you, do you ever try, find yourself arguing with them and saying, you know, no, we didn't torture people and arguing about the definition of the word torture? Sure. Yep, Absolutely. And I mean, you have to really kind of, you know, that, that's a very deep conversation because th- then you start talking about, you know, what was, uh, you know, what kind of uh, memos from the Justice Department were kind of provided that allowed for certain things to be done. And, and then were other officers then or other people, did they exceed that? And what's the U.S. military's role? And so, but you know what, they're smart enough now. They're in college and, and they're smart enough to kind of understand. But, you know, I, I, I want them to kind of come up with their own um, with their own views. I mean, you know, it, it, when, when your kids sit down and they start, you know, learning about ideologies, you know, what's the old saying that if you're not uh, liberal when you're young, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative when you're older, you have no brain. So, you know, and, and I don't really abide by that. But but ultimately, I, my daughter wants to save the world. And she, the other day, she's like, she's like, what's wrong with communism, dad? It sounds like a pretty good ideology. And I said, okay, let's have a discussion on this. Um, because and she's learning about this. That's great. Um, and that's what you're supposed to do. I mean, there was, you know, General Milley, the other day when he was talking about the, the teaching of critical race theory and all the controversy around that, I think he said something that's really important is that, hey, you know what, we should be taught everything in school. Mm-hmm. There, it, it, you, you, should not, you shouldn't not teach someone uh, about an ideology just because, uh, you know, it's objectionable. I mean, this is really important as someone's, to someone's development. So, How do you think history is going to regard the CIA's counterterrorism mission and particularly yeah. the enhanced interrogation techniques? I think it's, you know, so it's going to be mixed um, and it should be mixed. But ultimately, the, you know, and again, the way I see it is there's far more to our counterterrorism posture than that. 
So, you know, not diving into the, you know, I probably could talk about the Senate report because there are things that are unclassified, but, but ultimately that, is, that was one of many different things that were done. You know, what, what CIA did do, you know, in concert with the U.S. military is, is, is really, you know, degrade al-Qaeda um, to an extraordinary extent. And that means finding them and killing them. I mean, the U.S. military, you know, was, was very effective in that and the intelligence community helped. Um, that in and of itself is something that, you know, helps keep Americans safe. Along the way, things like, you know, black sites and, and renditions and others, you know, this is going to be talked about and, and discussed. And I think that, you know, the way I look at this is I, and I, I don't sit there and excuse these, uh, these measures, but I also was there at the table when these were discussed and seeing the American political system respond to it. And all I will say is there's not a single member of the, the Democratic Party who screamed a lot about interrogation measure, measures and other such uh, or the rendition program, or even drone strikes. But at that time, with the incredible fear that enveloped America, everyone was very supportive of the things that were being proposed. Um, and I think that's really important to understand because America was scared. Now, is there things to learn from that? Sure. The one point that I make on this, and I think is really important, is because of, of what has happened and the controversy around it, and despite former President Trump saying that he wants to torture people. There is no one at CIA who's ever going to do this again. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, so, right. and, and so, so, you know, I think we have learned. But make no mistake, that the, the, the palpable fear in the United States and within the halls of Congress on both sides of the aisle, including those who were really critical, you know, when, you know, some of the abuses later came out, they were pretty silent then. And I would say they were more than just silent. They were, they were in, you know, they, they certainly were uh, in favor of doing everything we could from stopping that next attack. And, and you know, and I think that ultimately, you know, th- there are lessons to be learned from that. And you also can look, you know, uh, uh, at other countries as well. Israel has struggled with these same issues. There's these same debates in, in Israel, for example. It's the, it's the great question of what do you do with a prisoner if you know there's a bomb out there? It's a hell of a good question. Right. And it's easy for people to say, don't lay a hand on them. And it's easy for people to say, you know, whatever information you would glean from them, you know, may be incorrect. And that might be all true. But there's a lot of pressure to get that information from someone when we thought there was another attack coming. Um, and so I just I want I think people should put that in historical context. It's, it's, it's unfair not to. And again, we, you know, we learn from history. And out of time we have left here, I want to get to the last sort of phase of your career, because you go from working counterterrorism and, you know, the war on terror, so-called, uh, taking a very senior position looking at Russia. Right. Which is, I don't think you spoke Russian at the time, no, not necessarily right. something that you'd been trained for, but there were a lot of, as I think I have this right, a lot of people who'd done the counterterrorism mission who started pivoting over yep. to Russia when they we realized. A bunch of us, right? Yeah, because you guys were really good at you know running intelligence networks yeah. and doing the things that we need to do. You take a very fateful trip to Moscow, right. uh, which you, has been told before. But tell that story and what happened because it's going to get us to this kind of phase that you're in now of your career sure. uh, where you're. Uh, uh, suffered a real personal trauma, but you're trying to turn it into an advocacy, I think, right. really. So talk to us about that trip to Russia. So so I think just to start off with, there was a whole bunch of us from kind of the, our Near East operations side of the house, as well as the counterterrorism center, who were moved over after the 2016 elections, and in fact, the Russian interference in the elections, because there was an idea that we wanted to push back. They ate our lunch. Yeah. Against, <laughs> against Moscow. Now, this was not, although I think that looking back now, maybe we should have Get in trouble saying this. This was not, you know, covert action, kinetic action, you know, you know, hitting the Russians, you know, violently like we did Al Qaeda. But it was just the idea that understanding that that you know uh, Russia had interfered in our democracy and we have to push back on them. So they wanted that ethos, that that kind of sense of 
aggressiveness. Um, so they put a whole bunch of Bit us. Bit of a warrior mentality. Yeah, for, you know, for sure. And that, that's not to, you know, and, and, and you know, we, we kind of moved into uh, Russian operations and joined an incredible bunch of colleagues with a deep understanding. Right. Languages and, and cultural understanding, a lot of experience there. So it actually worked. Did they look at you guys well. like as the toughs who were coming? Oh, it, it was, it's, I, first of all, you know, it, CI is a small place. So, right. so you know these folks. And, 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 and the way I handled this, and I think I handled it right, is I'm not going to go in there and tell them what to do. Yeah. But I, but I'm but we're going to push them to maybe do some things that they wouldn't have thought of because you um, did understand operations and but and it's also more of under it's it's a lot working with liaison it's a lot we so so I think you know and and I've written about this and it's okay to talk about it you know the best way to counteract the Russians is to publicize what they're doing you know covert influence people think of covert influence as the CIA making something up and you know there's there's plenty of books about about that. This is not that at all. This is we catch the Russians doing something. Bellingcat catches the Russians doing something. You publicize it because you know there's nothing better th- th- exposing uh, Russian malfeasance than you know than telling the truth. Mm-hmm. But so it was, it was just it was that kind of mentality. We're going to do that kind of aggressively worldwide. And so I took as I was at the time I was the deputy operations chief for what's called the Europe and Eurasia Mission Center, which is in essence I was the deputy head of clandestine operations. You know from places you know from what from Dublin to the eastern time zones of Russia. So it's a huge expanse with, with, you know, a lot of responsibility, a lot of personnel, but I, I'd never been to Russia. So I wanted to take a trip to see the embassy, to see John Huntsman, who is our ambassador there, who really is an extraordinary individual who'd been our ambassador in Beijing, had been governor of Utah, I believe. Um, but really one of, you know, a great American and, and someone who certainly decided, you know, in kind of other parts of his career, rather than in, in working back in the United States to, to tackle some, some really tough overseas assignments. So I wanted to see, uh, the ambassador, and I was also there to, to meet my Russian counterparts, which is, you know, people are surprised about this, but that's normal. You know, in the worst days of the Cold War, we always had, you know, uh, an open channel with, you know, the KGB. So it's the same thing now. And and, and it's always part of this kind of, you know, I've written about it in, in, in your paper as well in some op-eds of this this idea of a, a reset with the Russia, let's work counterterrorism. So we all roll our eyes and go try it and it never works. But anyway, so I was, I was going to go meet with Russian officials. And so in December of 2017, I made a trip to Moscow, and, and midway through the trip, um, something pretty awful, you know, happened where, uh, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night with an incredible case of vertigo. You know, the room was spinning. I had tinnitus, which is ringing in my ears, you know, awful, you know, splitting headaches. And, and you know, something really terrible happened that day, which, which ultimately, and that was December of 2017, led to my retirement in July of 2019. I never was the same after that. And, you know, I had a pretty, pretty miserable and still have, you know, have a, a healthcare journey, but really ended up fighting with the agency about getting proper medical care, um, which spilled out into public and has, you know, certainly caused a lot of consternation on my end. But, but ultimately, I did get the medical care, and and I'm feeling a, a bit better now. Yeah, this uh, this is the <clears throat> so-called anomalous health incidents, yeah. which are more commonly known as Havana syndrome. Right. You know, I think that you, I would argue, deserve a lot of credit. I mean, uh, for elevating the issue to the point where it became such a policy irritant for the administration right. that they couldn't look away from it. Uh, you know, my friend and colleague, Julia Yaffe, wrote yep. a big piece about you. I think this kind of brought it forward to a lot of people, this question of whether or not the Russians were using microwaves or other technology to, you know, to injure people right. uh, remotely. You were really outspoken about the leadership of the agency under Director Gina Haspel. Right. And, and I know that, you know, the current director, Bill Burns, has come in and really embraced 
the need to do something about this and to right. investigate it. And it's been reported that he privately has his beliefs that uh, the Russians are very likely behind right. this. And it is some kind of directed energy weapon. You know, how was it for you at the end of your career when this organization where you'd spent a quarter century of your life, really the only place you've ever worked professionally, did you feel like they were turning their back on you? Oh, yeah. I mean, so, wow, where, where to even begin on this? So let me just answer that. Yes, it was an incredible sense of betrayal. But it, but let me explain what happened is so so when I came back, you know I started a long process of requesting health care, and I was you know especially in the beginning, but then all through 2018 where I where I really started feeling terrible. I mean I, I lost my ability to drive, I lost my long distance vision. I had because you didn't fog. plan to retire. No, I, and yeah. you know why would I? I was I was you know and I, I say this modestly, I was destined to rise higher yes. up. Yeah, you were on the, the you were on the you were on the track going up. There's no doubt uh, uh, about that. Uh, but but ultimately, I you know I was repeatedly asking for them to to do things like send me to you know University of Pennsylvania where they sent a whole bunch of the Havana victims and and the response from the the senior levels of the agency's medical staff was no, and so I by the time I retired I was very frustrated that I was not getting the treatment I needed and I was not in great shape. What's interesting is what happened after that is when several of my colleagues started getting hit with this. And, you know, one thing that, you know, I think it's, it, it's pretty clear that, you're, you know, even when you retire, you're still very close to those who are still inside. So I started learning about, you know, multiple colleagues of mine who were injured by, by this. And so that, you know, then, then you start thinking. And then they got health care. Then they were actually, they, one of them was actually sent to, to, to Walter Reed, which is, when I say Walter Reed, that's the National Intrepid Center of Excellence. It's the U.S. government's leading traumatic brain injury uh, outfit, you know, run by the U.S. Navy uh, in, right in here in Bethesda, Maryland, close by. And so I then started reaching back into the, into the agency and saying, hey, I really need to get to Walter Reed. I am not in good shape right here. And the answer was no. And it was, it was very distressing. I, you know, I, I, I then started saying that, look, I, I really need this care. And if you don't do it, I'm going to go to the press. I actually went and I met with, I, I can say, one of the top five officials at CIA and said, uh, and said, look, I'm going to have to go to the press on this. Please, I, you know, I don't want anything else. Just get me to Walter Reed. And the answer was no. So I made, you know, the kind of the, the fateful decision to talk to Julia, you know, who is who is a Russian expert, you know, speaks Russian, born in born in Russia, and most importantly, had a had a venue, had GQ magazine to tell the real story. Yeah. And, and I was a really, long treatment, I think. A long treatment. And I was really worried at how I was going to come across because again, I am not a disgruntled employee. You know, and and ultimately if you go down in my, you know, my basement, you're gonna see all the intelligence medals. I'm one of the most highly decorated officers of my generation, you know. I think, you know, some people might not be thrilled with, you know, how outspoken I, you know, I, I was in the media. But, you know, if, you know, my reputation there is pretty damn good inside. So ultimately I went public. But what, what happened after that was really difficult for me because there was a huge backlash against me. And where a lot of people, you know, there were people, you know, the, the agency instructed in some fashion instructed my friends not to speak with me anymore. I mean, it was a terrible moral injury there. Ultimately, because of, I think, the intervention of, of you know, some former directors, um, after the story came out, uh, as well as I hired a lawyer, I hired Mark Zaid to, to simply communicate with the agency that all I want is to get to, to Walter Reed. They did send me there, uh, uh, just as the administration was changing over. So in January of 2021, I get to finally go to Walter Reed. And then Bill Burns comes and everything changes, to be honest. So, you know, uh, Bill Burns, who I had known, you know, briefly in the past um, from overseas service, you know, actually called me. And I had met with him several times and he has taken a tremendously different tact because I think fundamentally he agreed with that there was a, a, a big leadership fail from the last administration, not when talking about investigating who's doing this, and that's a whole separate issue, but just the simple fact of health care. If someone gets injured on your watch, you know, just get them treatment. And it was a mystery to him. It's a mystery to me, and I think a mystery to everybody, 
why that the former CIA administration did not get us the health care that we deserved. Um, that's something that, you know, to this day, I, I can't explain. I, I think now people in the agency, a lot of my, you know, I, people, they're, my friends are talking to me again. You know, this is a whole kind of separate personal issue because I really did feel betrayed by them, but that's okay. Um, and one of the great things, you know, and certainly at Walter Reed in, in, in therapy, you learn about forgiveness. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, I'm feeling much better. I, I have a much better relationship with the agency. But, but make no mistake, and, this, uh, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll conclude that I'm, no, I'm, I'm talking a lot here on this, but a former lawyer at CIA gave me the best advice anyone ever gave for retirees. He said, look, when you leave CIA, you, get, you are getting divorced. You can't hang on. So you can choose two paths. You can have a really nasty divorce. And he said, Mark, you kind of had that. Or you can try to have an amicable divorce. And he goes, that's where you kind of want to be. And, and I think that's a really smart decision because I am not I'm – not, I'm no longer a member of, of the organization. I still deeply believe in it. And I write about it. And if you read the book, it's almost you know, uh, uh, like a love affair. One of your colleagues in the media said to me, he goes, how, you know, they, she couldn't believe how poorly I was treated, but you still seem to love the place. Well, you can talk to my – my therapist about that. I don't know. <laughs> they certainly like talking about that. But, but ultimately, you know, it's an organization that I think is indispensable. I had a, you know, a little rough stretch in the end with them. But, but most importantly now, as you, as you hinted at before, I've become an advocate for healthcare, and I think that's the space I really like now because, as you know, and as the reports weekly are coming in, this is happening all over the world. And so I'll leave it to, to you know, the the great operations officers and targeters and analysts to find out who the hell is doing this. But on the healthcare side. I can still kind of publicly push that to make sure that that anytime someone's injured, they get immediate health care. And my understanding in talking to Director Burns and certainly from friends inside is that's the case. And you feel better. I do. I, I, well, the, you know, NICO, Walter Reed gave me two things. It gave me tools mm-hmm. and it gave me gave me hope. And, and, and that hope piece is actually really important yeah. because I didn't have that. You know, when, when I went public with that article with, with Julia, I had lost all hope. And, yeah. and I'll tell you, when I got to Walter Reed in, in January of 2021, and, and I still have a damn headache. My headaches haven't gone away. But I was not feeling great. But they, they, the anxiety that I had developed because of this kind of public battle um, with the agency, that I think the doctors were really concerned about that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have that anymore. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's nothing like going to a place where you're sitting with a whole bunch of Navy SEALs and Green Berets. And, you know, and doing yoga every morning or, or you know, or, or meditation or yeah. deep breathing exercises. So those are the things in terms of wellness that Walter Reed really treats um, uh, TBI victims. And, and let me just say one more thing. I was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. It's a, I have a formal diagnosis of a TBI based on an external exposure event. That's something that when I looked at it, I, I literally cried when I saw that because the agency had refused to believe that for so long. Um, these are the world's leading doctors on this. And I think that's, you know, we've, we've come a long way on it. And so, you know, I still, I still go back there uh, every week. I, I, have a, I have a lot of, uh, a lot of love for those folks there because they really help me. Well, Mark, it sounds like it's, uh, it's been a fascinating career. Uh, it's probably not exactly where you thought you'd end right. up being doing yoga and uh, <laughs> treating a brain injury or talking publicly about it. But right. uh, just as a journalist, I've always been grateful for your time and your candor. And thanks for coming on the podcast today to talk about your book. Thanks so much. Appreciate right. it. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please rate and share the podcast. Tell your friends. Push it out on social media. Go to the Lawfare store. Buy merch. You can probably get some old rational security tumblers while you're at it. And if you want to support Lawfare on Patreon, please go out there and give. 
This episode is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Karen Schillen was today's audio engineer at the studios of Goat Rodeo. And Sophia Yan, as always, performed our music. I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.